0: a viral epidemic, a financial meltdown, yet another black man being murdered by police, now rioting in the streets, unlike anything we've seen since L.A. in 92, if you were alive then or an adult then. It just feels like anything terrible, anything could happen next. And as we approach what will doubtless be the most contentious November elections that any of us can remember, I think the bumper sticker for Giant Meteor 2020 feels about right. The first manned space launch was yesterday, first time in 11 years, and a few of us were in a celebratory mood. Maybe we were more jealous of the astronauts, that they were getting out of here. Well, we come to this very famous and memorable passage of Jesus calming the storm. And so it feels profoundly relevant, especially if we understand that it's more about more than just danger and rescue. The extraordinary image of Jesus commanding the elements has less to do with miraculously managing nature than with portraying the gospel as a struggle against the demonic and the destructive powers of our world. The storm is about far more than the metaphysical storms in our personal lives, but all of the destruction and evil that rage in our world, and the danger to anyone who would dare disrupt their reign. The gospel, according to Mark, is about Jesus coming to liberate people from such forces and the realities in our world which those forces protect. Now, so far, In our journey with Mark, we've been walking with Jesus around Galilee, and now we're invited to get into a boat with him. But to where? Mark tells us to the other side, to Gerasa, to Gentile territory. Now we don't know exactly where they were leaving from, but we know what lies on the other side. And we know what lies between them and the other side. That is the Sea of Galilee. Now, some of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, but the Jews were generally not seafaring people. The sea had come to symbolize the dark power of evil and of chaos, threatening to undo God's good creation. It's what existed before Genesis 1, when God's Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, going into the sea, was to venture into danger just like Noah, just like the liberated slaves crossing the Red Sea, or to enter into the prayers of the Psalms that envision God facing down treacherous waters. That's what waters the sea represented in the the Jewish memory. But now these disciples had followed Jesus into treacherous waters, implying, of course, that choosing to follow Jesus does not in any way immunize us from danger and discomfort, but may lead us right into the middle of it. Yet it's so often, isn't it, that in these moments the rough seas, chaos, difficulty, danger. that this, These are the places that we question the presence of God, that we doubt his power, where we feel abandoned. And we have company because the disciples did too. Teacher, do you care or don't you care if we drown? And where was Jesus during the storm. Jesus was in the stern, Mark tells us, sleeping on a cushion. I love that last story element that Mark adds, on a cushion, because it contrasts the state of mind between Jesus and the disciples, and it shows Jesus' confidence that he knows he is exactly where he needs to be, that the dangerous storm doesn't indicate that he has deviated from the will of God, that Jesus is following his father into the storm. Now, at this point in the story, maybe we don't recognize the allusions, but Mark's readers would certainly be remembering another ancient Jewish story, one about a journey and a boat and a storm and terrified sailors, and that was the story of Jonah, who also slept in the hold of a boat when a vicious storm raged. Now, where was Jonah going? He was going to Tarshish, but where was Jonah supposed to be going? To Nineveh. He was supposed to be going to the pagan imperial city of Nineveh, a Gentile city to tell them about God's plan for healing the world to call them into his family through repentance but what did Jonah do Jonah refused he was supposed to go to the other side that we are talking about here in Mark but because of prejudice and fear he sailed in the opposite direction you see in Jonah's mind which in the story is representative of Jewish religious arrogance and exclusivism. Yahweh wasn't supposed to invite pagans into the family. Yahweh was the God of the Hebrews, not of the Ninevites. And preaching repentance to the Ninevites would upset the order of the world. It threatened the way things were and the way things ought to be. And Jonah, like millions of religious people before and after, decided that disrupting the status quo was far too much for God to ask. These allusions to Jonah in the Gospels are numerous, particularly in Matthew where the references are more overt. In Mark, it's a little bit more oblique, but the story of Jonah is meant to be a preamble in many ways to the story of Jesus. And even Jesus reflects upon the story and says the ways that his life compares in contrast to that of Jonah. Here we see Jesus in contrast, sort of the inverted Jonah, if you will. He's crossing to the other side in a boat. He's crossing the very social, religious, and yes, racial boundaries that Jonah refused to. Jonah is sleeping in the boat, and these pagan sailors are terrified out of their minds, and then they learn that Jonah is the cause of it, that he is fleeing from God on the very seas that God has created. What kind of sense does that make? And so Jonah comes topside, only to be thrown overboard by his own admission of who he is and why the storm is raging. He's thrown overboard into the chaos of the sea, almost like a sacrifice, a scapegoat. And the storm stops. Well, Jesus, like Jonah, is sleeping, and he comes topside, and he rebukes the storm. And it stills. It stops. And of course, the disciples start jumping up and down, giving high fives. Did you see that? We were all gonna die, and then Jesus. Well, you you saw it. You saw it happen. Can you believe this? That was close. But now everything's fine. Everything's back to normal. Well, <laughs> anything, anything but they weren't high-fiving. They weren't jumping up and down. They were anything but relieved. He stills the storm, Jesus does, and now they're more uncomfortable than they were before. They're more shocked and scared. The storm stops at Jesus' command, and the disciples are shocked with fear. Now, the standard interpretation of this is that this fear is more like awe like Moses in front of the the burning bush. They were in awe of God's power. Possibly, probably. I'm sure that that was part of it. But we've seen so far that they've already seen this sort of display of power in Mark, in the healings, in the exorcism of demons. There's something more going on here regarding their fear. Mark doesn't even mention that they were scared during the storm. They were wondering where Jesus was, but Mark doesn't say they were scared. But now, after Jesus has stilled the storm, they were this is what it literally says they were in fear of a great fear. Who is this person we are with? Who is this rabbi who commands the power of God Himself? It's not a bad question for any of us to ask. Who is this? The disciples are not comforted, but they're terrified by the fact that even the wind and the waves obey him. Even the chaos, the fear embedded in this image of the sea, even the power of destruction, even the demonic forces that live in the sea, according to the Hebrew mind, even they obey him. This is not merely, in other words, a demonstration of power on Jesus' part. This is apocalyptic. This is the end of the world as they know it. The problem is that the end of the world is, of course, terrifying. Liberation is terrifying. Their liberation will be scary because it involves antagonizing the forces of darkness and control and of social segregation that when Jesus threatens to bring Jew and Gentile together by crossing the sea, the demons get upset. Liberation is scary. And the disciples are terrified, just like we are often terrified by being set free, by being liberated. We often fear doing what we know will be generative and good because it means facing down and denying the forces of wrong. When I was drinking, I knew that alcohol was contributing to a number of my problems. It wasn't good for my health. It wasn't good for my marriage, my parenting, my vocation, or even my own happiness. I knew these things, and yet I, for many months and years, resisted stopping. I was scared of stopping because I had so normalize my pathology, that ending it was terrifying. What would it be like if I really had to face my anxiety, my boredom, my stress, my conflict at work, etc.? What if I had to face all of those things without the crutch of alcohol? While I knew that my drinking was preventing a great deal of healing, While I knew that not stopping was maintaining the very status quo that was so unfulfilling, the inertia of normalcy became a prison. It was confining, sure, and life was so much smaller and more constricted, but it was known. It was predictable. And liberation, you see, was scary. Friends, Liberation is always scary because it always awakens demons inside of us and outside. These demons always rage when Jesus threatens to end social segregation, end racial segregation and animosity. The forces of darkness and evil do not like that. The sea in the realm of the Hebrew mind and in these disciples' minds, the sea is the realm of the demonic. And this storm isn't meant to be just a random weather occurrence that Jesus stills to show his power. It rises up against Jesus and his little band of followers because they are disrupting the rule of chaos and fear. They are rising up against the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, just as they rise up against racial reconciliation today, this week. And when the disciples do finally make it to the other side, we'll see next week the first encounter in Gentile territory is with a multitude of demons inhabiting one man these demons called legion. To follow Jesus isn't to just join a new religious movement. There were many of those around ancient Palestine at that time, and the the demons did not rage against them. The state did not crucify them. The very close-minded religious leadership did not rise up against them, but they did against Jesus. To follow him isn't to join a new religious movement, but to follow him into insurrection against cosmic forces of evil. And this is likely more than the disciples signed up for. And this is likely more than we've signed up for if we are Christian this morning. Because what it means is that everything, Must change. Everything. But the disciples are afraid of that. They're afraid of everything changing. They're afraid because they know that Jesus is opening up a new world with his alternative authority. And they can no longer, we can no longer, take refuge in the excuse that we cannot reasonably expect to live differently, that we cannot reasonably be expected to live differently. On one side of the Sea of Galilee, in their origin, life might be difficult. It might be under the oppressive systems of religion and imperial rule, but at least it's predictable, at least it's known, at least there are some comforts to it. There is no one in Galilee, there's no one there that is taming the sea, that is challenging the demonic world. We've seen Jesus do that, but it's something different now as they get into the boat and they join him in liberating the entire known world. And the liberation, according to Jesus, of the world is worth a little danger. And isn't isn't that what our brothers and sisters being arrested in protest are saying? That the liberation of the world is worth a little danger. It is worth a little sacrifice. The gospel proclaims over and over that real change can only begin when our illusions die. That real life can only begin where death is tasted. And that peace comes in the midst of, not in the absence of terror. But we know that we can venture into those places as scary as they might be because Jesus will not abandon us. That he will stand with us just like he stood with those disciples. And that despite appearances, that his kingdom will ultimately prevail. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we see our world coming apart at the seams, as we see so many deadly forces at work, Lord, let us be brave souls that take up your calling in whatever way we can. Maybe we're not the protesting kind. Maybe we're not the marching kind. But let us be the praying kind. Let us be the befriending kind. Let us be people who are not limited by the rules that have been laid down for us, by the forces of empire, the forces of chaos, the forces of evil. Father, let us live by an alternative script, the script that Jesus lived, and let it be our own, especially as we think about the life of the church during these difficult times. Let us be an alternative community, living by an alternative set of values and leaning into the world that is to come and pulling just a piece of it down into the world that is now in the way that we go about our work in the way that we go about our family life our parenting our personal lives lives let us take serious your call into the storm, believing that you will stand with us and that you will ultimately still all of the storms in our world. We pray that you would be with us this week and we pray in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. As we come to the table each and every Sunday, we confess our faith because eating of the wine, eating of the bread and drinking of the wine is a profession of faith. It is a confession of where we think ultimate true ultimate re- reality lies and where we think ultimate healing comes from. And so we use various confessions throughout church history and around the world. This morning we are using the Heidelberg Catechism question 53. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First that the Spirit With the Father and the Son is eternal God. Second, that the Spirit is given also to me so that through true faith he makes me share in Christ and all his benefits through true faith comforts me and will remain with me forever. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And after giving thanks, he broke the bread and he said, This is my body. It is given for you. Eat this all in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for many centuries, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God, and they're for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. I'll give you just a moment to administer the elements to uh, your loved ones with you or Whoever is with you in your home uh, or to yourself. And then Matt will um, bring us back together uh, and we'll sing together, Come Thou Everlasting Spirit.